Exorcist Morum, et excommunicationum, strigus et vitos lupos, fidere. First and foremost, the name of the month of November in Gaelic, Mis Nasalna. This then becomes the name for the celebration Ichihauna, meaning the night of the month of November, more commonly known now perhaps as Halloween. Summer by Gaelic reckoning ends at the start of August, with Lunasa being called the first month of autumn. This is because it is based on the calculation of the rise or diminishing of daylight. But Samhain and Bieltana are related to the domination of dark and light respectively. However, they are also connected to the cycle of life and death. For great assemblies were held at this time, especially every seven years, for the selection of high kings, for important appointments, for laws, and feasting. However, being connected with death, it is also an inauspicious time in many respects. The tales of Finn McCool has him slay a one-eyed giant who emerges from the Shi every Hihauna to burn Tara to the ground. He accomplishes the feat with a magical spear much in the image of Lu slaying the one-eyed giant Balor. Now, while some type of fire spirit in the onset of winter may not immediately make sense, we must remember this was the time of year when one would likely start keeping a fire in the home, thus generating an increased danger of house fire. If one accidentally fell asleep, perhaps lulled to sleep, such an accident could happen. Finn resists that sleep and is thus able to defeat the troublesome spirit that seeks to burn down the home. 
It was said that great sacrifices had to be made to the Favoiri at Samhain. It was also when Tigernmas and his people were slain by the god Kromkruach, while they were offering two-thirds of their produce and even their children to placate these forces of death. However, we might see this in another way. It was not that people were actively making such sacrifices, but that, just as described in the Second Battle of Moitura, the Favoiri were imposing this as a tribute by force. As they wielded powers related to death, any crop destruction or infant mortality was attributed to them, and is thus considered these forces taking what is their tribute, not as a willing sacrifice, but as part of the everyday cycle of life and death. No culture was ever sacrificing two-thirds of their own children. They would have been suicidal. They would never have survived. But this figure is comparable to the level of regular infant mortality in ancient societies. And so like the winter, the Favoiri were also killing off the plants, with only a few hardy species remaining throughout the winter, as symbols perhaps of immortality, the power to resist the forces of death, associated with the cold. This is also the time of the most famous of Irish epics, the Tanbo Kulignia, which seems to be a reflection of this same kind of idea. Conhovar is required to give a grand feast every Ichehauna and invite and feed everyone, for if he does not, then whomever is not fed and sheltered by him at this time will be stricken by some misfortune and die as a result. This relates to the notion of it being a time of assembly, as suggested earlier, but attaching a specific cult meaning to this, so that in some way it is the symbolic act of all the people coming under the divine protection of the king who will drive back the forces of death itself under his protection. However, despite the great king's power, there must still be some explanation for the onset of winter and the domination by these forces of death for a quarter of the year. And so it is that Konhovar represents the divine king Lu, proven by the fact that Lu is called Konhovar in the Laurgavala Eren. But he must somehow be prevented from action by some force, for he is unable to pre prevent being overrun by these forces. Now this is explained as the debility of the Ulstermen. Now while the Tan is a legendary tale of heroes, it seems absolutely clear that it reflects a cosmological struggle between forces of life and death, or underworld gods versus sky deities, with Konhovar representing the pinnacle of this celestial order, with Kuhulan as one of its foremost champions. Alil and Maeve, who begin their campaign right after the onset of Samhain, the forces of the underworld, represented by the White Bull, which is stealing the life force of the world, represented by the Dun Bull. Fergus, god of strength and fertility, likewise has his quote-unquote sword taken away by Alil after he is found sleeping with Maeve. It is very likely that in this dynamic, the powers of Conhovar and his debility is linked to the loss of control of the sun. Conhovar is a figure of celestial order, but this order is strongly tied to the solar cycle. For instance, Conhovar's household at Ewenmacha hosts 365 champions, a solar year, and has 12 beds for the 12 chariot chiefs that form a circle around his own bed, which is in the very center of the house, which likely relates not only to the solar months of the year, but the zodiac, 
whereas he is represented in a position of the celestial order in which all things turn round. When Kolhavar rises from the pangs and takes to the fight, this is towards the onset of spring, for the battle was said to last from Samhain to Imbola. And so it is the celestial king again going on the offensive, regaining the solar and the light, and launching an offensive as the power of the sun. But Kolhavar should not be confused with the sun. He is the celestial king with his red branch, ruddy branch, and twinkling core. That is, sunrise, sunset, and the night sky. He is the totality of celestial order, as his house represents. One of the surviving stories dedicated to him has him winning the vat of Garrick, which held a special liquid called the coal mead, which was to be drunk in vast quantities on Ichihauna. And he won the battle for it by night, in the company of Fomoirians, which may be taken to be pirates, but might also relate to spirits of the dark. He is the only one to survive the battle in which he is decidedly linked to storm winds. The sun he is not, but a celestial god. The sun is a key part of the celestial order, as well as the power represented by the sky, and thus the debility when it is lost. The second battle of Moitura is also initiated at Samhain, and likely does not conclude until spring as well, in my opinion at least. Thus, Lug would seem to play the same role in that tale, not as Kohulan, but as Konhovar. For Lug does not initially engage in the battle, but is held back. Uh, he directs action in the battle, signal and signals its conclusion, just as Konhovar's stirring from his debility brings about the final battle and the victory of Ulster. While it does seem to be a harvest myth, especially given the dialogue between Lu and Balor, specifically referring to the theft of grain and other produce, we might also see it as a winter myth, with Balor and the Favoiri taking winter stores of food through rot, rats, and other disastrous effects that could see an entire community starve to death, just as Kuhulan must protect the cattle from being stolen. And so... In viewing it this way, we could link it also to the tale of Finn McCool. Now, Finn confronts what is arguably some type of fire spirit. And Balor has sometimes been likened as such, sometimes even thought as a solar type of deity. But it must be said that in other versions describing Balor, it does not say his eye is inducing flame, but rather it's a poisonous eye. And thus it is the power of corruption and represents, therefore, the forces of rot and decay and death. And so, it could be likened to fire, as in the case of Finn McCool, where there is a fire spirit that is going to burn down the house, or perhaps burn down the crop stores. But it could also be simply the forces of rot, decay, and death itself. The doors of the Shi were thought to be open during this period, and so spirits were able to easily transition between worlds. The doors open probably relates to the forces of death pulling the forces of life into the earth. The doors are likewise opened around Bieltana, for these forces must be brought back out again from the underworld to bring fertility and growth. This is also thought to relate to the pastoral activities of our most ancient ancestors. Cattle would be brought down from the highland pastures around Samhain and brought out again around Bieltana. 
thus following the same cycle as the cosmos. However, at either time, there was a great danger of encountering spirits or even deities, and the act of dressing up in costume perhaps relates to this idea. One would dress up in disguise to avoid spirits of the dead which may desire to harm them, but which would also be unable to recognize their intended targets, or would be frightened away or confused by the spectacle. Alternatively, one might dress up as a spirit, uh, and the treats may be symbolic of offerings to the spirits or gods. To discuss the customs actually requires another video, but it should be noted that celebration seems to have involved bonfires, that they were used for purification and also prophecy. The fire had the power to banish evil. Apples and hazelnuts also seem to have played a role, with apple bobbing linked to this since the very ancient times. Apples are a symbol of immortality in the other world, which is also why Cuhulan must follow an apple to find the land of Skah in the wooing of Emmer. There was also possibly a type of torch procession. In the Dinchenahas, it says that Lug led the people of Ireland with a torch for a funeral of his wife, and this may in some way be related. In some accounts, Samhain is also linked to the death of a goddess, Mongfind. That the dead would rise on this night is also portrayed in some surviving old Irish tales. In one, Alil, king of Connacht, promises to well reward the man who is able to tie a loop around the ankle of a man hanging from a tree on Uichihauna. And this might in fact relate to some type of human sacrifice that was performed at this time of year by hanging people. When this is tried, the dead man speaks, requesting that he be carried and brought to drink water. When this request is fulfilled, however, it releases a great force of death which kills everyone in the house. The writer then warns people against leaving any stray water laying around the home, especially on Ichihauna. To my knowledge, no one has offered an explanation for this tale, but based on my analysis of the birth of Kahulan, the reason should be clear already to those that watch this video. The water is a medium through which the forces of the underworld can enter into this world. Thus, a great force of death can come through the water into the home. This connection might have arose through an awareness of tainted water that brought plague. It was known that something dwelt within the water which caused it, though invisible to the eye. When in the story, the dead wished to contact the water so that he could spread his power of death through it, also akin to how the water would be contaminated if an actual dead body came into contact with it. Now we see this same awareness within the Persian Avesta, to the extent that a great portion of the ritual activity had to do with the purity of water and keeping dead things away from contact with it. Thus, water is by default a sacred and pure thing which conveys life, but which, when contacted with the dead, is turned into a medium of death. Now, Samhain is a good time to connect with your deity and with your ancestors. I also think there is no harm in participating in Halloween as it exists, even though it's extremely commercial and sort of silly in many ways. 
But what you should do is try to introduce more traditional customs back into it, rather than completely disengaging with the general public. And in that way, you can teach children, you know, when they come to your doors or when you're interacting with people at Halloween parties or whatever, and you can try to reintroduce some of these elements and teach them about its actual tradition. Because most people are unaware. Having a bonfire with your family and friends while making offerings to the flames, including bones and drink. October 31st, the spookiest night of the year. Every year on this night, people gather to celebrate Halloween. There are many traditions associated with this holiday, many common behaviors one might see. People dressed up in costumes, many of which are scary, monsters and the dead, as is the custom of the celebration, but anything else from superheroes to peanut butter and jelly are fair game as well. Children especially can be seen wandering neighborhoods in these costumes, ringing doorbells and exclaiming, trick or treat, in the hopes of receiving a handout of candy, although occasionally they're stuck with a classic toothbrush or pencil. Inside these houses, which are often decorated to resemble a haunted house in some way, with a fun side of course, parties are held, scary movies are watched, apples are bopped for, pumpkins are hollowed out with faces carved into them and candles placed into them to be put on display. Corn mazes, hay rides, scary stories, music, haunted houses, latex, apple cider, and pumpkin pie. It's often regarded as an enjoyable celebration. However, consider explaining it to someone who had no prior knowledge of it. How strange it all must seem. We must ask, why do we do these things? Where did this holiday come from? How far does it go back? Is it Christian, pagan, or neither? Is it a European holiday or an American one? In this documentary, we will be exploring not only the history of Halloween and the origins of these traditions, but also the associated tales and characters, such as the cunning Count Dracula, the mischievous Jack of the Lantern, and the fearsome monster of Frankenstein. We will look at how Halloween is celebrated around the world, but of course the main goal of this special presentation documentary, the first of the campfire videos by the way, is to have fun. I would also like to mention, I'm not here to tell you that you should or should not celebrate Halloween. My goal is just to give an honest explanation of the holiday in this special holiday presentation. So, that being said, let's get boo it. Get it? Boo it? Yeah, I don't know how I'm so hilarious. It's, uh, just a gift, I guess. Before we begin, I would like to thank Murray Rhodes, Ryan Mendoza, Benjamin Vidstein, and Adam Behan for being our most recent supporters on Patreon. They join these supporters who make these videos possible. The first question we must ask in our quest to understand Halloween. Where did it begin? Where did it come from? Paganism? Christianity? Victorian novels? Europe? America? Canada? The answer is yes. By that, I mean Halloween is a combination of a variety of different cultural and religious beliefs, and it varies from culture to culture. Halloween in the United States is notably different from the equivalent in Mexico. Let's begin with the beginning. To do that, we must go to ancient times, specifically ancient Western Europe. 
The vast majority of cultures and belief systems across the world and across time have some sort of holiday or event centered around the dead, their ancestors, their forebears, those whom they have lost. Some are simple times of mourning, remembrance, and honoring them. Others are large gatherings and events, and even festivals. To the Celts, an ancient people centered in the British Isles and Western Europe, but found across what is today Spain to what is today Turkey, the latter tradition was quite prominent. Over 2,000 years ago, they were very likely celebrating a holiday called Samhain. Samhain was a pagan Celtic, specifically Irish festival, which on our calendars occurred on the date of October 31st. It's spelled S-A-M-H-A-I-N, but because Irish is a confusing language, it's pronounced Samhain. Samhain was not a person, nor a monster, nor a god, at least probably not. It was a festival. There was a very similar holiday called Colin Gaif, practiced by the Britonic Celts, the Welsh in that. The celebration began at sunset and lasted until sunrise on November 1st, which was possibly the first day of the Celtic New Year, although that is contested. Some have attempted to revive Samhain, and these neo-pagans may still celebrate it instead of Halloween. But for the purposes of this documentary, we're focusing on the ancient Celtic festival. The festival marked the beginning of winter to the Celts. Indeed, the word Samhain was actually Irish for summer's end, and remains the word for November in Irish. It was a very important time. Much of Irish mythology mentions it, and many great stories begin during or take place on Samhain. Very little, however, is known about the actual details of the celebration. Indeed, it is not known exactly what role honoring the dead even played. What we do know comes from traditions that carried on in the Celtic world into recorded history and the records of medieval Irish monks who took the time to write down the traditions of their ancestors. These monks wrote centuries after Ireland had been converted, however. Still, there is very likely some truth to their accounts. Samhain was very likely an important date for the ancient Irish, not simply for religious reasons, but also political, social, and pastoral reasons as well. Tribes held great meetings and councils, laws were put into place, lawbreakers were banished, and the season of war, very common in Ireland, was ended. To ancient peoples, the beginning of winter was a time to take stock of food and supplies. Cattle, for example, were of major importance to ancient Celtic, specifically Irish, society. They were regarded as a form of wealth, and in a sense were used as currency. It was on or around the first day of spring that these cattle were led to the pastures to graze, and perhaps on Samhain that they were brought back. Cattle were also slaughtered in this time, as the meat kept better in the cold. It was not strictly business though, as I've mentioned a festival is said to have been held. There were feasts, gatherings, contests such as horse racing, and other fun. Rarely is Samhain mentioned without mention of alcohol. For the majority of cultures, days centered around remembrance of the dead tended to occur in autumn and winter. It of course makes sense to have such days and times when the world around you seems to be dying and growing darker, to be transitioning and hibernating, to deal with the oncoming cold and sterility of winter. This was, quite possibly, no exception. Celtic pagan religion was heavily focused on nature. The Celts were very much in touch with nature, as they were very much dependent upon it. Periods of transition between seasons were periods of special importance. 
The focus of Bialton, hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly, held in May, was on spring, life, and warmth. Samhain, however, was a darker festival. On both Bialton and Samhain, it was believed that something strange occurred. The barriers between this world and what the Celts called the other world became very thin, and people were able to even cross into the other world, or otherworldly beings were able to cross into ours. The other world in Celtic mythology can be complicated, and interpretations of it may vary. With the barriers between these worlds opened, the dead, or fairies and spirits called as she, were able to cross into our world. It was best, therefore, to the ancient Irish to stay close to the village and to engage in behaviors which would ward off any foul spirits that might wander into their world. Bonfires, for example, are said to have been common. It is believed that these bonfires may have had spiritual importance for a number of reasons. Perhaps it was to mimic the life-giving sun in a season where the daytime was getting shorter. It was into them that the Celts made offerings to the gods, a portion of crops and animal sacrifices. The fires were said to have magical qualities to them and were likely used in divination rituals, future telling. Not all spirits were malevolent. Some were the spirits of former loved ones. They may have been returning to their old homes on this one night of the year. In order to appease them, food and drink were often left out around a place for them to eat and be welcomed. In return, these spirits may have offered blessings. Again, though, not all had such intentions. Wicked spirits may have also come back in this time to seek revenge or curse others. The Eshi may have also been hostile. Accordingly, many people dressed up in frightening costumes, likely made from animal skins, to ward these spirits off, or at least to avoid being recognized. Perhaps you can see traditions which resemble our own modern ones. Lighting fires, dressing up, leaving food out for wandering spirits, but it is not simply to these Celts that we owe Halloween. Another culture, which you may have heard of, had important festivals for both autumn and the dead that had a lasting impact on Western culture as well, the Romans. In celebrating the Roman goddess of fruitful abundance, Pomona, for example, the Romans may have created the tradition of apple bobbing. The Romans also had times for the dead as well, the Dies Parantales, the Ancestral Days. This was a nine-day celebration in February which celebrated the ancestral dead. Offerings of food were often left at the tombs of the dead. There was also Lemuria, held in May, in which they acted to drive foul spirits off from their homes. Sometimes the head of a Roman household would walk around this house on this night, throwing beans over his shoulder chanting, Around midnight, Haec ego mito, his redimo meque meosque fabis. I throw these. With these beans I redeem me and mine. The beans were supposed to be a way of boarding off spirits. Milk was also poured onto graves, and food gifts were offered on them in this time as well. Similar practices could be found across ancient Europe. In some areas, the early Germanic tribes were in regular contact with the Celts. They, as fellow pastoralists, likely had a festival around the same time, which may have included the commemoration of the dead as well. The Romans conquered many Celtic territories, such as modern France and much of pre-Anglo-Saxon Britain, although not Ireland. No doubt, the traditions of these peoples influenced each other and perhaps mixed as they came into contact. In the 4th century AD, however, things started to change around Europe. The Roman Emperor Constantine the Great 
adopted a new religion, Christianity. This religion would spread rapidly through the borders of the Roman Empire, and within a few centuries would reach more distant lands, when figures such as St. Patrick took them to places like Ireland. Did the followers of this new religion come crashing into these lands, destroying all things pagan? In some circumstances, yes, but in many circumstances, there was negotiation. It was far easier for the Catholic Church to convert people if they allowed them to retain their old culture, the harmless aspects anyway. They prefer to simply say, hey, that's a nice festival you got there, it'd be a lot cooler if you dedicated it to the uh, one true God though. Who is the one true? Well, I'm glad you asked. Essentially, many pagan traditions were Christianized. These activities were to be undertaken no longer in the name of pagan nature gods, but in the name of Jesus Christ, or at least as secular traditions, so long as, of course, they did not contradict Christian teaching or beliefs or anything like that. Halloween was not the only holiday to be influenced by pagan rituals. Christmas and Easter as well began as pagan holidays, whose traditions were converted into ways of worshipping Christ and commemorating his life, or were just traditions that lost their pagan religious elements. Many Christian theologians, for example, believed that Christ was probably born in the spring, but the church decided to hold his birthday party on December 25th every year to replace the pagan festival of Saturnalia. It's very important to reiterate, however, that we don't know which traditions Christianity replaced and which ones Halloween owes directly to Christianity. There are those who claim that Halloween is a purely pagan or satanic festival, but the truth is that a lot of the rituals, as we will see, seem to have come from Christianity, developing in the late Middle Ages and early modern era, and it is very hard to separate what came from a Christian tradition and what came from a pre-Christian tradition, because the traditions have been mixed to such an extent over the years. Furthermore, of those pagan traditions, we aren't sure which ones were specific to Samhain and which ones were a part of other pre-Christian Celtic festivals like Yalton as well. Furthermore, we don't know which practices were specific to the Celts or were common among multiple peoples of ancient Europe, specifically, again, pastoralist people who brought their herds back at the onset of winter. Again, what exactly took place on Samhain is not well understood. Much of it is, frankly, guesswork. We know Samhain very likely played a role, but what role exactly is unclear as the sources are very ambiguous. Mourning, remembering, and honoring the dead was, and is, as important to Christians as it was to pagans, and so not all of the related customs made a rough transition. In the early 7th century, the Roman festival of Lemuria was replaced by the Christian All Saints Day. Instead of the veneration of pagan gods, people were now to venerate saints. This holiday occurred on May 13th. However, in the 9th century, the holiday was moved to November 1st, possibly to replace the pagan Samhain. Although, again, some scholars are skeptical of this, given that the change was made in the Germanic world, not the Celtic world. All Saints Day was also known as All Hallows Day. The night before it then, on which a vigil was held, was known as All Hallows Evening. Much later, in Scotland, it was shortened to Hallows Even. I believe you see where I'm going with this. It's where we get the word Halloween. Later, the date of November 2nd was turned into All Souls Day in remembrance of all the souls of deceased Christians with special attention to those souls still in purgatory. 
Together, these three days are known in the Christian religion as the All Hallowtide, or Hallowmas. This was still not really Halloween, however. That holiday still had a long way to go. But this form of celebration did resemble it in important ways, and would eventually give rise to it as it stuck around and developed in medieval through early modern Europe. By the late Middle Ages, many customs had developed surrounding the All Hallowtide in Western and Central European countries. Bells were rung in mourning of the dead across cities. Churches displayed holy relics and encouraged parishioners to dress up in costumes resembling their favorite saints. Another interesting tradition of dressing up on this day revolved around the Dance of Death or Danse Macabre. It came from a medieval Christian artistic allegory meant to show that both king and peasant were equal in death, joining together in the eternal dance, and that only service to God was what mattered in the end. Some Christians believed that the dead actually rose on this night to perform this dance. In parties and such, people dressed up as people from all social backgrounds and danced together. This reminded medieval Christians that all earthly things eventually come to an end. Emperor, your sword won't help you out. Scepter and crown are worthless here. I've taken you by the hand, for you must come to my dance. The concept of souling had developed as well. As early as the 14th century, people, typically children of a poor background, would go door to door asking for soul cakes. The cakes typically had crosses on them and were made with some sort of spices. In return for the cakes, the children would offer prayers to people in purgatory. This simultaneously was encouraged by the Christian requirement for charity. It was also believed by many Christians that the souls of the dead came down to earth on their journey from purgatory to heaven on this day, and food was left out for them. These young soulers would sometimes symbolically imitate these spirits and accept offerings on their behalf. Dressing up may have also been a way to protect oneself from the spirits. While souling, these children may have carried lanterns made from hollowed turnips. This practice continued until the early 20th century, and was practiced in places like England by both Protestants and Catholics. Soul cake, soul cake, pray you good mistress a soul cake. One for Peter, two for Paul, three for him that made us all. It's important to note this activity may have been more common on Christmas at certain times, however, rather than on the All Hallowtide, which may be where collecting charity money by going Christmas caroling comes from. Another common tradition was to light candles in memory of the dead, something which is still a very common practice. They were not simply for the sake of commemoration, however. They were sometimes lit to guide benevolent spirits back to their families and to keep the demons of Satan back in the darkness. Bowls of milk and other foods were also left at the sides of graves in parts of Europe. In the 16th century, interpretation on how to celebrate the All Hallowtide began to vary as Christianity began to split into a large number of denominations following the Protestant Reformation. Many groups regarded the concept of purgatory as papist or Catholic nonsense, while other Protestants held on to these beliefs or developed equivalents through different interpretations of the Bible. The Reformation caused quite a bit of dispute among Europeans, not all of it friendly. In fact, very little is friendly. In 1605, a radical named Guy Fawkes attempted to blow up the English House of Lords in order to assassinate the Protestant King James I in an attempt to bring England back to the Catholic Church. His plot failed, however, and he was arrested on the 5th of November and later executed. Ever since then, the 
5th of November has remained as Guy Fawkes Day, or Bonfire Night, throughout much of England. It's not a Halloween celebration, but many traditions, such as lighting bonfires, though with his effigy on top of them, were adopted by the English as secular celebrations, mocking Guy Fawkes' failure, and may have influenced Halloween as well. The next major transition in our story comes with European culture making its way to the New World. Throughout the 17th and 18th century, the Americas were colonized primarily by the Spanish, Portuguese, English, French, and Dutch. Christianity, of course, came with them, and with their Christian religion, in many circumstances, came the All-Hallowtide religious celebrations. In the 13 colonies of America, many different kinds of Christians could be found. To groups like the Puritans, All Hallows' Eve was not celebrated whatsoever, along with other church holidays like Christmas and Easter. But other groups like Catholics and Anglicans still recognized it. Time passed, and eventually, the 13 English colonies became their own country, and opened their doors to people across Europe. One main group are crucial to this story. The Irish. With some help from the Scottish, though not as many Scots came to America. Today, around 30% of Americans have Irish ancestry, compared to about 8% with Scottish ancestry, though the Scots-Irish are included under Irish. Anyway, these Irishmen and Scots brought with them some of the traditions of their home countries, some of which might have developed in recent centuries, others perhaps being far older. As they grew in number, more and more Americans became interested in them. The Irish and Scottish especially practiced the art of turnip carving on Halloween. They were not used merely as lanterns though, as was mentioned before, but may have had faces carved into them to represent souls in purgatory or to ward off evil spirits, such as the spirit of the infamous Jack of the Lantern, whom we will soon discuss. In America, however, they discovered a fruit for the job which was much easier to work with, the pumpkin. Pumpkins had been carved in America ever since, perhaps, the 1820s or 30s, though they weren't necessarily a Halloween practice, but rather just a fall activity. The Celts were happy to adopt the practice, however, and within a century, pumpkin carving became a Halloween thing. Harvest or autumn parties across America throughout the 1800s began picking up traditions that we would consider to be Halloween-ish, slowly evolving into our current holiday. So. Having mentioned that, who was this Jack of the Lantern anyway? Stingy Jack, Drunk Jack, or Jack of the Lantern is a character in pre-modern Irish folklore. He was a vile, lying, cheating, manipulative scoundrel who played tricks on people, stole from them, and was otherwise a burden to society. One night, Jack was drunk, wandering through the countryside, when he came upon a figure in the road. This figure turned out to be... Satan himself. Satan had heard tales of Jack's depravity and simply had to come see Jack for himself. He told Jack he was there to take his soul and bring him to hell. Jack grew quite depressed and begged Satan for him to satisfy just one last request. He asked Satan if he could have another drink before going to the eternal fires of hell. Satan agreed and off they went to a nearby pub. After drinking several ales, he asked Satan to pay by turning into a silver coin. A strange request, but fair enough. Not that I expected any more from you, said Satan, and he did so. However, when he did so, Jack stuck the coin in his pocket next to a crucifix, which prevented Satan from returning to his original form. 
Jack then demanded of Satan to let him live for another year. Satan agreed, and they parted ways. Time passed, and exactly one year later, in the same circumstances, Jack came upon Satan on the road again. Jack asked Satan once again for a final request, a much simpler request this time. Jack simply wanted an apple. That's it, just a fruit before eternal damnation. Satan agreed. Evidently, he had not learned his lesson from Jack's trickery. He went to the nearest apple tree to pick an apple. As he did so, Jack placed crucifixes around the tree, preventing Satan from leaving it. Ironic that Satan found himself in trouble after picking fruit from a tree. He was furious and demanded his release, but once again, Jack forced him to accept his demands. I'll let you go, said Jack, but you must swear to me never to take me to hell. Satan was forced to agree, and once more, they parted ways. Eventually, though, Jack's lifestyle took a toll on him, and he did, indeed, die. His soul prepared to enter heaven, but as he approached the gates, God turned him away. There was no way Jack was going to enter heaven after having lived such a sinful lifestyle. Jack then went to the gates of hell and begged Satan to allow him to come in. Hell, he supposed, was better than wandering the netherworld alone for eternity. But Satan had made him a deal. Jack was never to come to hell. Instead, Satan scooped up an ember from the fires of hell and gave it to Jack to be placed in a turnip to be used as a lantern for him to see as he wandered the earth at night for eternity. As this ghostly figure, according to legend, could be seen wandering the roads and countryside of Ireland in the darkness with this turnip lantern, he earned his name, Jack of the Lantern, or Jack-o'-lantern. Tales of Stingy Jack vary quite a bit, but that was a very stereotypical version of the story. And thus, a tradition was born. Here are some of my jack-o'-lanterns from last year. Aren't I a talented artist? I'm joking, they're stencils. But hey, how about this one? The idea of Stingy Jack wandering the countryside may have been encouraged by the Will-o'-the-Wisp, a mythical spirit fire, known scientifically in Latin as the Ignis Fatuus, the Fool's Fire. These are naturally occurring bursts of flammable gas that appear over bogs and marshlands. The sudden appearance of flames of a variety of colors occasionally and suddenly flashing over the countryside encouraged all manner of folklore, as one might expect. When people observed these things, many no doubt thought that it was truly Jack of the Lantern wandering the countryside. This was not the only tradition that the Irish and Scots brought with them to America, however. Other traditions survived as well. It was a common occurrence for children there to dress up in costumes and go door-to-door -door asking for coins or food on this night, a practice known as guising, likely related to souling. As far as North America goes, this tradition was first reported to have been practiced in Ontario, Canada in the 1910s, and not long after was reported in the United States as well. Children were guising in the city of Chicago by 1920, but in Anoka, Minnesota in 1920, they were already having Halloween parades. Today, this small American city outside of Minneapolis, of around 17,000 people, prides itself on being the Halloween capital of the world. This wasn't exactly trick-or-treating, though, and indeed, the term trick-or-treat doesn't seem to have come about until the late 1930s and was invented in America. In Ireland and Scotland, children might have even performed for the treats, singing a song or playing a flute, similar to another possible influence of trick-or-treating and again Christmas caroling. 
The practice may have been influenced by the practice of mumming. People across Western Europe dressing up in costumes and performing around holidays to the public in hopes of a donation, much like current street performers still do. What does trick-or-treat really even mean, anyway? The treat part is obvious, but what's with the trick? Are they saying, give up the candy, or else? Well, yeah. While there is definitely a good degree of trickery that does go on during Halloween, this is almost always just harmless fun today. However, it was actually derived from a real set of circumstances. In Ireland and Scotland, people who gave to solars or geysers could expect good fortune, but those who denied gifts to them could expect misfortune. Some children, too impatient to wait for divine intervention, decided to bring the misfortune to these homes themselves. In the early 20th century, children were accustomed to using the night of October 30th, actually, or November 4th in England as the night before bonfire night, for all manner of pranks and vandalism. This night was indeed called Mischief Night. Property was egged, windows and light bulbs were smashed. Wagons were disassembled, placed on roofs, and then reassembled on top of them and left there, which is actually pretty childish. Simply puerile. My adolescence was nothing like this at all. This mischief eventually got way out of control. Mischief Night was a nationwide event for children to be burdens to society. Communities in America and Canada soon came together and decided to do something about it. They decided to redirect the children's energy toward harmless, youth social fun and decided to make Halloween a night for positive activities. When the children were bribed with candy, a deal was struck, and they were tamed. Trick-or-treating soon became a semi-official community event. As those kids grew up, however, they found themselves reluctant to stop having Halloween fun, and Halloween became a party for people of all ages. The modern Halloween celebration was taking place. A myriad of European traditions, mainly from Ireland and Scotland, were giving birth to this new holiday in America and Canada. Sugar rations during the Second World War put a damper on the celebration, but once the war was finished in the 1940s, the holiday took off. Halloween wasn't really so much about religion anymore, be it pagan or Christian, though some churches still organize Halloween get-togethers and things along those lines for children and families. Churches are a common location for trunk-retreating, for example. The All Hallowtide is certainly important to Christians, but Halloween is kind of the secular offshoot. We'll come back to subjects like that and much more in a bit, though. For now, we've left out quite a bit of an important part of Halloween celebrations. The origins of its myths. The monsters, ghosts, ghouls, and of course, the very important period in which these beings were on the center stage. The age of gothic literature. It is no coincidence that many Halloween tales are set in the Victorian era, or roughly between 1830 and 1900. The stereotypical haunted house, even in today's world, is typically a Victorian one. The ghostly inhabitants of these houses? Well-mannered, educated, dapper, yet mysterious Victorians, who died in the oddest of circumstances. The Victorian era was the height of Gothic literature. Bram Stoker, Edgar Allan Poe, Mary Shelley, Robert Louis Stevenson, and other famous authors all lived in this era. There are those that would say that these authors even outdo us as far as making a good story goes in some cases. This is, of course, up to major debate. Recent generations have made some very good stuff, and many horror movies today have been major, equal inspirations to the Halloween celebration, 
But it is worth pointing out that we often find ourselves looking to these classics for inspiration. But even these clever Victorians looked even further back for inspiration themselves, to the legends and tales of their European heritage, of ghosts, vampires, bogeymen or boogeymen in America, demons, monsters, witches, the undead, and much more. Bram Stoker's Dracula was published on May 26, 1897. The story tells, and of course there will be no spoilers by the way, of a mysterious Count Dracula, a handsome, intelligent, and charismatic nobleman who lives in a castle in the Carpathian Mountains. With the help of a Mr. Jonathan Harker, he moves to England. This Count Dracula's mysterious side, however, is quite dark. He is, indeed, a parasitic, undead, blood-sucking monster. A vampire. When he arrives to England to feed upon the living by sucking their blood, thereby consuming their life force, it's up to a team led by Dr. Abraham Van Helsing to stop him. With the movies especially, Dracula has since been the inspiration for the archetypal vampire. Fanged teeth, a dark but gentlemanly or ladylike outfit with a cloak, pale skin, red eyes, and possession of supernatural powers, such as great strength, the ability to crawl along walls and turn into a bat, and a bite which may turn others into vampires. Fear not, though, a vampire also has weaknesses, a sensitivity to sunlight, garlic, silver, and the crucifix. According to legend, a vampire can be killed with a silver bullet, a stake through the heart, or decapitation. Whether or not an inability to be seen in mirrors is strength or weakness depends on the situation, I suppose, but Count Dracula certainly hated mirrors. Count Dracula was historically based on Vlad III, Prince of Wallachia, who was born around 1430. His father was given the title Dracul when he joined the Order of the Dragon, which we discussed very briefly in my Germany documentary. Dracul, in Old Romanian, meant dragon, though it later came to mean devil. This title then passed to his son. The point of this order was to defend Christendom against the invasions of the Ottoman Turks, who sacked the great Christian city of Constantinople during Vlad's lifetime. Vlad III is remembered as a cruel monarch. His favorite method of execution earned him the title Vlad the Impaler. Political enemies, criminals, adulterous women, and his Muslim Ottoman Turk enemies, whom he would spend much of his life fighting, were known to be impaled on pikes as a form of slow execution. Despite his successes, he was betrayed by the Hungarians and imprisoned, and eventually died while fighting the Turks. His body was cut to pieces and his head was sent to Istanbul, where it was impaled on a pike. The legends of blood-sucking creatures wandering the night are found well before Bram Stoker's time and are fairly widespread across cultures, having developed independently of each other. In the late Middle Ages through the early modern era, the people of Europe searched heavily for an explanation to all the death that surrounded them. Many offered supernatural explanations. On some occasions, graves were dug up to investigate corpses which were believed to have been not so dormant. Those who dug up recently buried corpses were sometimes shocked at what they discovered. Hair and fingernail growth, blood on the corners of the mouth, and even bloating of the belly. In other words, corpses which looked quite lively. 
Today we understand that these changes occur naturally after death. Corpses swell from the gases of decomposition and blood is pushed to the surface of the skin and out of the mouth. The skin recedes as it dries, making it look like hair, nails, and even teeth have grown. Corpses have even been known to groan as gas moves out from the esophagus. To the superstitious peasantry, however, these were signs that the corpses were alive and active, possibly even moving among them at night. When such corpses were discovered, they were often killed a second time by beheading or by having a stake driven through the heart. This inspired much of the European legend surrounding vampires. The situation got so bad that the Austrian Empress Maria Theresa, who reigned from 1740 to 1780, was forced to send her Dutch physician, Gerard von Spieten, to disprove the existence of vampires. The aristocracy were quite annoyed with the vampire nonsense, and especially the defilement of graves. Even the laws passed across Europe attempting to ban the practice of digging up graves to re-execute vampires did not cause the legends to die, though. Another creature which may have influenced the vampire myth was discovered in the 17th century. The vampire bat, which feeds solely on the blood of other creatures, was discovered in the Americas, though bats had a long history of being regarded with suspicion before they were connected to vampires. Most Europeans, Native Americans, and Aboriginal Australians regarded them as some sort of evil, dark beings. But in some cultures, such as in China, they actually brought good luck. Suspicion of dark magic and evil was not directed solely towards corpses, however, but also to the living in society as well. Typically people who were strange, ugly, elderly, lived out in the countryside by themselves, and were primarily female. The people of 14th through 19th century Europe and America who lived in periods of high stress tended to regard such women as witches. Those who used dark magic and worshipped the devil, and who actively harmed others. Brooms, cauldrons, English countryside hats, and other attire and common everyday tools became the dress and instruments of their evil. Such women, when found guilty of practicing witchcraft, were often burned at the stake or executed in a variety of ways. The most famous witch hunt occurred between 1692 and 1693 in Salem, Massachusetts, the Salem Witch Trials. Over 200 people were accused in these Salem Witch Trials, 19 were found guilty and executed, and 6 others died in associated incidents. Overall, thousands of people, primarily women, across Europe and America would be killed for witchcraft throughout the centuries. Similar witch hunts occurred across the world, in India and East Asia. Even today, in Islamic and African countries, for example, women are still executed for sorcery. The superstition surrounding these women gave rise to the archetypal witch. Perhaps some women were up to no good, but many witches were very likely innocent. Today, the only sure scientific way of determining whether or not an individual is a witch is to weigh them. If they weigh the same as a duck, this naturally would imply that they are made of wood. If they are indeed made of wood, then we must arrive to the conclusion that they are, in fact, a witch. Remember that on Halloween, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to avoid getting turned into a newt. Black cats are sometimes associated with witches. They are seen as either the animals of evil or are actually witches themselves who have shape-shifted into them. 
Throughout much of European history, they were regarded with suspicion and viewed as supernatural beings or creatures which brought bad luck. Although in some places in Europe, they were good luck. In some circumstances, people who owned black cats were punished or even killed, and the animals themselves were of course commonly killed as well. Apparently, it's worth mentioning, October 27th is Black Cat Day in the United Kingdom, which is held on August 17th in America. It seems to be a day dedicated to erasing stigma against the cats. Ghosts, zombies, skeleton shades, ghouls, spirits, whites, wraiths, phantoms, apparitions, there are many names for the dead who rise from the grave and the many forms they may take. Perhaps mindless, reanimated corpses, an invisible spirit, or something in between, such as a girl in a burial shroud. No doubt, such legends have existed in nearly all cultures across times, most certainly even before recorded history. Nearly every town in America has a ghost story or two, a place you shouldn't go, especially at night, because of what supernatural beings might be lurking there. According to some polls, link in the description, between a third and half of witches violent, throws things, and hurts people. These ghost tales can get quite interesting. Another type of ghost-vampire mix, called the Kasu, is sometimes reported in Thailand, with similar concepts across Southeast Asia. Legends tell of a princess who was intended to be wed to a foreign prince, though this foreign people to which the prince belonged, the Siamese, had conquered her kingdom. Secretly, this girl was in love with a lower status boy from her own kingdom. When the prince discovered the two of them together, she was sentenced to be executed by being burned alive. Out of desperation, she turned to a local witch for help. The witch gave her a potion to protect her from the fires, but it did not reach her full body in time. Much of her body, apart from her head, neck, and internal organs, had burned. The woman survived, but, tainted by black magic, became a monster, the Krasu, a floating head with organs trailing below it. The monster is said to have roamed villages ever since with an insatiable desire for raw flesh, specifically the flesh of human fetuses, making pregnant women a specific target. This creature, too, is associated with the Will-o'-the-Wisps of Southeast Asia. That's one version of the story, anyway. There are a number of versions across Southeast Asia. Back to the creatures familiar to Western culture, though. The word zombie actually has an African etymology, which made its way to Heidi. Today, depictions of zombies are all over our media. A famous zombie, although not a typical zombie, is Frankenstein's monster whose tale comes from Mary Shelley's 1831 book, Frankenstein, or the modern Prometheus. The monster was designed by a mad scientist, Victor Frankenstein. The word ghoul is Arabic, from a ghoul, a monster from the pre-Islamic Arabian religion, which behaved very much like a zombie. A boogeyman, or sometimes the boogeyman, as a single specific character, comes from the Old English booga, meaning something frightening. The first mention of a goblin seems to come from the 12th century, referring to a kind of monster haunting the countryside of Normandy. Gremlins are similar beings, though accounts of what exactly a goblin or a gremlin is tends to vary. Tales of werewolves are quite ancient, dating back to at least the ancient Greeks, but likely earlier, as characters of a kind of Indo-European mythology. A werewolf is a person who, either by being cursed or by volition, becomes a wolf, or more commonly, a wolf-man. The typical trigger for a temporary transformation is a full moon. 
The typical way in which one becomes a werewolf is, as I said, by a curse, or by being bitten or scratched by another werewolf. Though less commonly heard about, there were fears of werewolves alongside witches during the aforementioned time periods of high stress and witch hunts. Some people find the potential scientific origins of the werewolf intriguing. The notion that a man could become a beast after being bitten by a wild animal was very possibly rooted in reality as an ancient explanation for rabies. Another famous author of gothic fiction, perhaps the most famous, is the American Edgar Allan Poe, born January 19, 1809. Poe is best known for his short stories and poetry, some of which are required reading in American public schools. The Cask of Amontillado, The Raven, The Telltale Heart, and my personal favorite, The Mask of the Red Death, are just some of his best-known works. Such writing, however, indeed came from an equally somber man. Much of Poe's life was complicated, and his death is something straight out of one of his own works. On October 7, 1849, Poe was found wandering the streets of Baltimore, delirious and incoherent. He was taken to a nearby hospital where he rested until he died. Doctors were not able to communicate with Poe. He was evidently wearing another man's clothes and called out the name Reynolds multiple times. What exactly happened to Poe remains a complete mystery. Perhaps just as strange is the Poe Toaster, or more likely at least two men, perhaps father and son, who, every year, from around 1930 to 2009, on Poe's birthday, left three roses and a bottle of cognac at his grave. The identity of the Poe Toaster, or Toasters, remains a mystery as well. These are just some of the creatures that haunt our minds and have an opportunity to come to life during Halloween, and just some of the authors to whom we owe such captivating and imaginative stories, around which much of our Halloween culture is based. We've gone over the history of many traditions, the religion, mythology, and legends, some of Halloween's most famous characters, but there is more to discuss. How has the modern world shaped Halloween? What is it like in other countries? What is its future, and is it a dangerous holiday? The first president to celebrate Halloween in the White House was Dwight D. Eisenhower, introduced by his wife, Mamie Eisenhower, in 1958. Ever since then, celebrating the holiday has been a presidential activity, and certainly an American activity. Likewise, Halloween is still common in Canada, and even in Quebec, which is of course part of Canada, but with its French origins culturally distinct. It's not entirely clear which country, America or Canada, had Halloween first, although the holiday was greatly developed in the United States. But what about the rest of the world? What other countries celebrate Halloween? It's a complicated question. The All Hallowtide is observed across the Christian world but it is not the same thing as Halloween. Modern Halloween, though perhaps based on very ancient cultures and traditions, is something which came about in America. Americans are, as you might expect, the biggest celebrators of Halloween. An estimated $8.4 billion are spent each year on celebrating in the United States alone. Much of it is on candy. A quarter of all candy sales in the U.S. occur during the Halloween season. The Celtic world still celebrates, of course, while maintaining its own cultural traditions as well. The English have largely welcomed the holiday, alongside Guy Fawkes Day or Bonfire Night as well. 
Halloween is spreading across much of Europe, Oceania, and parts of East Asia, such as in Japan, the Philippines, and South Korea. But it is doing so slowly. People from these countries tend to see Halloween as an American thing and suspect that it's arrived in the countries simply because it's good money and helps pick up the monetary lull between summer and Christmas. Many, especially older generations, view Halloween as an Americanization of their culture and would prefer to simply get on with their own all Halloween practices if they have them. There is a somewhat similar celebration in spring called Walpurgisnacht in places like Germany and Scandinavia. Despite this, younger generations, especially, have embraced Halloween more. Much of Oceania has an Anglo-Celtic cultural origin. However, celebrating the holiday in New Zealand and Australia is a bit awkward, considering it's a different season there in October. I have a New Zealander friend who said that flowers blooming and warming temperatures doesn't exactly inspire the Halloween spirit, but it has gained some popularity there. There is a similar story in South Africa. Throughout much of Asia, the Middle East, and Africa, Halloween is largely uncelebrated and viewed as a foreign thing. I fully respect the right of Europe and Asia and other cultures to reject Halloween if it doesn't fit into their culture, by the way. Throughout Latin America, a very similar holiday called the Dia de Muertos is celebrated. Mexico especially celebrates this holiday. It's rooted, of course, in the fact that Latin America is predominantly Catholic, with large influences from Spanish and Portuguese culture. But there are other traditions involved which likely date back to indigenous festivals, such as the festival dedicated to Mixtecasahuatl, the Aztec goddess of death. Dia de Muertos celebrations also vary from country to country. Some involve a three-day festival spanning the All Hallowtide. Graves are often visited by family and friends and decorated. A very common decoration are candles and the marigold flower. Food is left out for the dead as well. Skeletons are especially common symbols of the dead and have inspired the very popular treat of the celebration, the sugar skull. A famous tradition involves building altars for the dead, often consisting of photographs of the deceased person in question, alongside pictures of the Virgin Mary and Christ on the cross. People often pray at them, honoring the dead and telling stories about their lives. The festival ends with a special mass. Halloween celebrations in America and Canada are as strong as ever, and there are no signs of the holiday losing popularity anytime soon. Every year, as the leaves change color, decorations begin to go up. Oh, who am I kidding? Big box stores have decorations and candy up for sale in July, for goodness sake. But anyway, despite this, could there be a threat to Halloween survival in the long term? Could it simply be too dangerous? Could there be razors, glass, drugs, or poison in children's candy and other actual evil afoot that could ruin the holiday for everyone else? The occurrence of this type of thing is well known, but in actuality, extremely rare. The warnings and reports you hear about every year are mostly based in myth and blow up because of anxiety of the idea of such a thing, not necessarily actual events. On top of that, when there are actual events, they're so ambiguous that they're hard to disprove or look into. The truth is, there is no documented case of a child ever dying from Halloween candy that has been tampered with by a stranger and given to them during trick-or-treating. However, there have been incidents of people doing weird things with candy and actually trying to hurt children, 
and some deaths which were blamed on Halloween candy but were a part of a larger story. One of the first incidents seems to have come from 1964 from a woman named Helen File. Mrs. File felt there was an age limit to trick-or-treating and she was quite serious about it. As a result, she gave out random objects like steel wool, dog biscuits, and poisonous ant buttons to teenagers whom she thought were too old to be trick-or-treating. Helen File was a bit of a weirdo, but she seems to have been harmless. She did not intend for children to eat these things, obviously, and none did, but she was still charged with child endangerment regardless. There were other incidents, as time went on, actually resulting in children's deaths. These incidents blew up across the news. Unfortunately, the less exciting, though equally disturbing truths about such stories do not make the front page as often. Both incidents resulting in the death of children were linked to the parents of the children, not from trick-or-treating. One was a case of grave irresponsibility, the other cold-blooded murder, both of which were blamed on the trick-or-treating myths and hysteria. I can post links to these two stories in the description if you want to know more. There have been some circumstances where razors and needles were found in candy, but again, there has never been a death associated with the candy given out by strangers. These incidents are quite rare, and many of them were hoaxes. Despite this, from the 1980s up through the 2000s, many communities have offered the opportunity to x-ray children's candy. Ironically, if there's an actual regular danger to kids' safety on Halloween, it doesn't come from poison candy. It comes from cars. Statistics show children walking around on the streets face an increased risk of being hit by a car on Halloween night. So kids and chaperones, be safe. Drivers, don't be stupid. As far as candy goes, again, most of the fear is based on hysteria and myth, but we do live in a world with ridiculous people, so I'm still going to tell you to check your or your children's candy. Throw away anything that looks strange, even if it's just been opened slightly. Report to the police anything that definitely looks strange. Avoid eating homemade treats from people you don't know. Avoid the house where the freak lives. All that kind of stuff. I don't want to hear about any, oh yeah, this dude I watch on YouTube said it was sick. <coughs> type incidents, alright? There are many ways to celebrate Halloween. Trick-or-treating, partying and dancing, apple bobbing, costume contests, house decorating, ghost stories, maybe even house decorating contests, haunted houses, making foods, corn mazes, hay rides, pumpkin carving, maybe some slightly mischievous pranks. There are some traditions which have been lost over time, however. One tradition is to set a place for your past relatives at your dinner table in order to honor them. Another is to have what is called a dumb supper, a feast in which there is little talking, so that one may dine with the thoughts of those whom they have lost in mind. An old Scottish tradition, called an apple wedding, is related to the supposed ability to better tell the future on Halloween night. It involves cutting the peel of an apple off without breaking it, throwing it over your shoulder, and looking at what it foretells. Whatever letter the peel most resembles, when it lands, is the first letter of the name of the person whom you're going to marry. One tradition, which isn't that forgotten, is to light candles for the dead. This certainly isn't my invention, none of these are, but I have developed my own way of lighting candles. Each Halloween night, I light one candle for my paternal relatives who have died, one for my maternal, one for all my friends, neighbors, peers, and even pets who have died, and then an individual candle for everyone who has died since the last Halloween, whom I personally knew. 
So three candles no matter what, plus one individual candle for anyone that's died, as I said, since last Halloween. While I mentioned Halloween is a time for good fun, I do also like to incorporate some moments of seriousness in it. It is a good time to remember those whom we have lost. Maybe to visit a grave and leave some flowers or something along those lines as well. Across Northern America, on October 31st, people will be celebrating Halloween. Well, almost. In some cases, Halloween, including activities like trick-or-treating, is celebrated on the closest weekend to Halloween. This is not the norm. I have lived in five states, and it has only been the case where I currently live in northeastern Ohio, and even here, it's only in certain cities that this is done. I don't like telling people how to celebrate, but I will say that I don't much care for this. I have no problem doing Halloween activities on the closest weekend or throughout most of October in general, but in my humble opinion, Halloween itself falls on the 31st for a reason. The date is significant, and ignoring the 31st is breaking over 2,000 years of tradition. Interestingly, the city in which I live also has designated trick-or-treating hours, generally 5.30 to 7.30 p.m. Maybe it's just because I didn't grow up doing this kind of thing, but I've always felt that this is something people can generally handle for themselves. Growing up, I mean, it was just understood that trick-or-treating began around sundown and lasted until around 9 or 10 when the porch lights started going off. I've made my point, I think it's red tape, but I still participate. But privately, I ignore it as much as possible and still do as much as I can on the 31st itself. And that's perhaps the main point of Halloween. It's not about how much money we're willing to spend on decorations or costumes, nor how much candy we're able to collect, but rather the fact that communities across Northern America can come together to celebrate age-old traditions. It's a time for fun, a time to express yourself, to be creative, a time to celebrate the fall season around you, a time to come to terms with your fears in a light-hearted way, to become that which you fear for a night, and to act out a harmless fantasy, a time to do this with those you care about. So to summarize, here's Halloween in a nutshell. It is a very complicated mix of traditions with different origins. Many traditions may have come from the ancient Celts, but a large share seem to have actually evolved from Christian traditions and secular folklore beliefs. Lines between them are somewhat blurry. The holiday has both Christian and pagan elements, but I personally regard it as neither, and see it as a secular folklore holiday celebrated across groups by many different groups in America. Halloween stems from All Hallows' Eve. It may have its origin in Europe, specifically Ireland and Scotland, but it was in Canada and the United States that the holiday truly lit up. Many of the figures and characters of Halloween have very ancient origins, but were brought to life in the works of Victorian authors and modern movie makers. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, I, Justin from Fire and Burning, wish you a happy Halloween. And they said YouTube is story.
tell you about Hades. Welcome to an overview of the underworld. I didn't realize how funny that title was until I was talking about it with my mum. <laughs> overview, underworld, it's hilarious. Laugh. The layout of the Greek mythological underworld is fascinating. And I can't believe I haven't talked about it with you yet, so that's what we're doing today. So let's get to it, the geography of the underworld. First things first, the idea that the underworld was, you know, the underworld that was underground isn't strictly how the story goes across mythology. Of course we do have plenty of stories in which someone descends into the underworld, Orpheus style, to go and rescue their beloved. Potentially an Egyptian influence that uh, led to the description of Hermes as someone who guides the dead down into Hades' domain. But we also have plenty of citations that suggest that the underworld is in the far west. Clearly a very mysterious place to the ancient Greeks because that's where they housed so many things that were just mind-boggling. The underworld, that's where the Titan Atlas is holding up the heavens. All sorts of things go on in the West, including dead people. So supposedly if you travel far enough west you will hit a ring of five rivers. These are the five rivers of Hades, Hades being the name of both the god who presides over the underworld and the underworld itself. Now the five rivers, let's see if I can remember their names. You've got the Styx, the most famous of all the dead people rivers, and also the river that uh, all the Olympian gods swear oaths upon. If you read the Percy Jackson books, I'm sure you know a thing or two about that. Styx is the river of hatred. Acheron, this is actually the river that Charon the ferryman uh, ferries the dead across in order to get into the underworld, if they can pay up, of course. A dead loved one in ancient Greece required a coin under the tongue to pay the ferryman in order to actually cross over into the underworld once and for all. This is why proper burials were very important. Otherwise you're just stuck on the banks of the river of pain and I don't want to swim across that, do you? See, so already we're learning things. People often mistake this uh, for the river Styx because that's the river they know about. They think, oh, the ferryman, come to ferry me across the river Styx. No, no. No, he has not. You don't got nothing to do with the sticks. You all up in the acre in here. Oh, the river of pain. It's like, oh, the ache are on. I'm hilarious. Laugh. Uh, what else is there? The river Leith is the next most important, I would say. This was the river of forgetfulness, and it flowed into the meadows of Asphodel, which we'll get to in a minute, and was the main source of water from which uh, the shades of the dead would drink, and so they would forget their lives. I was about to say their living lives, but it's just that's just their lives. That's... The word lives covers that. So pro tip, if you're ever stuck in the underworld, don't drink from the river Leith. And then you've got the Phlegethon, the River of Fire, and the Cocytus, the River of Wailing, neither of which play major roles. So just there being gloomy. So now, ah ha ha ha, there are three main locations in the Greek underworld. And when you die and you take your golden uh, tongue coin and you give it to the ferryman and he ferries you over the acorn, you trot on through the gate guarded by Cerberus, three-headed dog, very friendly on the way in, but don't try to go back out again. He will tear you to pieces. Then you head on in and you will encounter the three judges, Radamanthus, Minos, and I can't remember the other guy's name, Akos. Akos is the last guy. These are the three people who will tell you whether you get to go to good guy dead place, bad guy dead place, or medium guy dead place. Has anyone been watching The Good Place? Because it's incredible. It's almost entirely unfair given that these three dudes were not particularly great dudes in their lifetimes. 
But here they are, judging you. I'm looking at you, Minos. You's a bad dude. There was a fourth dude. I think his name was like Triptolemus. Uh, but uh, he's... He's just kind of there in the background hanging out. He's the fourth one that no one mentions. So then you will be judged by these three dudes who have nothing really special about them except that Zeus was their dad, but let's be real, who wasn't Zeus the dad of? Like, come on. And you will be sorted, like your very first Hogwarts feast, except you're dead and there's no magic and things are bad, almost entirely. Because let's look at our options here. We have Tartarus. Tartarus is not a fun place. This is where you go if you've really pissed off the gods at some point. And it's not really a one-to-one -one parallel with the Judeo-Christian concept of like hell, uh, but you will be punished here. Tantalus pissed off the gods and now he's stuck like waist deep in uh, a swamp, like a freshwater swamp. And there's some fruit hanging overhead. And anytime he reaches for the fruit, to feed himself because he's hungry, the fruit gets pulled up out of the way by the wind. And anytime he leans down to get a drink of fresh water because he's thirsty, the tide will go out and he won't get to drink anything. That sounds like fun. Or Sisyphus, my favorite. I actually genuinely love Sisyphus. He's been given this big old heavy boulder and a hill, and he's told that if he can roll the boulder over to the other side of the hill, he'll be free again because he escaped the underworld like two or three times, he's great. He's, oh, he's my hero. But unlucky for poor Sisyphus, uh, his punishment is that anytime he gets even close, the boulder will slip and roll back down again. It's just too steep and he's gonna have to start all over again. He just keeps pushing the boulder up the hill forever. And then you got Ixian and his flame wheel and all them girls with their water jugs with the holes in. Just a lot of punishment to go around. Those are the pits of Tartarus. If you're a medium person, you go to the meadows of Asphodel. I'm already freaked out by this concept because it's basically just like a never-ending prairie. Prairies freak me out. They're basically land oceans. Have you ever noticed that? It's just land all the way to the horizon. That's weird. That's messed up, prairies. You should have mountains or something. Ugh. Prairies. But prairies full of like ghosts of dead people who don't remember who they were. Cause they were kinda boring. That's not true. They weren't boring. They just weren't that good and they just weren't that bad. They didn't do anything notably bad and they didn't do anything heroic. And so now they're just here. It's like, oh, you did a great job like baking your whole life. Hope you enjoy drinking from the River Lee and forgetting all your friends and family and wandering around aimlessly forever. A couple of noteworthy people ended up here. Medusa is an interesting one. Heracles ran into her uh, while he was on his 11th task? When he was uh, picking up Cerberus and ended up ripping Theseus's butt off when it was stuck to the chair. Yeah, Heracles ran into Medusa during that whole thing, but she had been drinking from the river and couldn't remember who she was. This is just by one account, I think, though. But a really interesting one, am I right? The great hunter Orion resides in the meadows of Asphodel, in the dread prairie, uh, trying to lead a hunt for a ghostly stag for all time. He, I don't think, drank from the river. So that's a place that's meant to be like normal and fine and not freak you out, but I hate it. That sounds like a nightmare. And then we get it. The fields of Elysium. It always turns into Halo. We start out with church choir, end up with Halo. The fields of Elysium are where your heroes and your people who did great stuff go. It's like its own separate, like, walled community. Like one of those fancy neighborhoods, you know, where you're not allowed to be a minority for fear of getting shot. So all the heroes wind up here. It's just, it's just a nice place. It's described as being really nice. They've got like great fruit and water and stuff. Something that is worth noting is the fact that they have this like pool there where you can go and if you drink from the water in that 
cool, unlike Eberberberberly. You get to be reborn into the world and live life again. And you can do this three times, I think. And if you manage to uh, live a good life and get into the Elysian Fields all three times, four times, however many lives you ended up having, then you get to live on the Isles of the Blessed. Hell yeah. It's like... This is the fanciest fancy place. The richest of the rich get to hang out here. It's like there's this big lake in the middle of the Elysian Fields and in the lake there's these islands and only the really great people who lived life a bunch of times and got into Elysium every time get to live there. It's interesting that the only people who get a chance at doing life over are the ones who already did it well. Like, you did great. You want to do it again? Go do it again. But anyone who screwed up, it's like, no, you're stuck with that forever. Even if you're just a great baker guy, who's like a nice guy, but like, ultimately never saved anyone's babies and wasn't born from Zeus raping someone in the form of a duck. So that's the layout of the underworld. There's some geographical uh, infos and some factoids for y'all. Hope you enjoyed it. It's such an interesting thing to look into. Please go forth and find this is the Egyptian realm and the god Anubis. The story of Anubis's birth has many different variations. The great god Osiris was married to Isis, the goddess of health and marriage and stuff. But whether by accident or not, Osiris had an affair with Isis's sister, Nephthys. Nephthys was married to the baddie god of Egyptian mythology, Set, god of like chaos. And so when she fell pregnant, Nephthys didn't want to incur the wrath of Set, and so she left the newborn baby out to be exposed, hid him away in the wilderness where he wouldn't be discovered by Set. Isis, however, heard what had happened and she sought out the baby and through great struggles was led by jackals to where the baby lay and she adopted that child and named him Anubis. And in fact, Anubis is most often depicted with the head of a golden jackal although colored black and he became Lord of the Dead, protector of graves and the god of mummification. This was thanks to the fact that after Osiris's murder at the hands of Set, Isis approached Anubis, her adopted son, and asked him to help her in her resurrection rituals. And Anubis did aid Isis by wrapping the body in linens, holding the different pieces together in the first mummification. However, Osiris, now that he had died, was unable to fully return to the world of the living. And so Anubis gladly let Osiris take his place as god of death. And while Osiris became the king of the underworld and the afterlife proper, Anubis still acts as the guide for dead spirits, leading them through many treacherous trials on their way to the Hall of Two Truths, at which point Anubis would weigh the heart of the deceased against the feather of Mart, or truth. During this process, a heart needed to be found lighter than the truth. It served as a measure of the goodness of that person's soul. But if the heart outweighed the feather, the soul was deemed unworthy and was devoured by Amet, a sort of hippo-crocodile-lion being, dying a second time and being denied access to the afterlife. Anubis had many titles, meaning things like protector of tombs, but ultimately, depending on how you read them, they could instead just mean he who hangs out a lot in cemeteries, which, I mean, as a Buffy fan, I can get behind. And Anubis took this role as protector of the dead and protector of burial grounds very seriously. There's another story in which Set, taking on the form of a leopard, attempts to attack the body of Osiris 
before he can be resurrected. Again, he did it a couple times. That's how the body got hacked up in the first place. But Anubis, in his form as a jackal, is protecting the body, and he fights Set off and brands Set with a hot iron, leaving spots all over him, and that's how the leopard got its spots. Anubis then uh, flayed Set and wore the, the fur as a warning to anyone else who would dare try to desecrate burial grounds. It's always fun in mythology when someone gets flayed. So that's the Egyptian god Anubis, who you can get as a gyro card, a five-star gyro card, in the game Immortal Kombat. Hello humans, my name is Dale Kingsmill, and today I am here back again with another mythology story for you. That was bizarrely violent for an opening. Let's just, let's just breeze on past that. I have no real rhyme or reason for why I have selected this story to tell you this week. I just wanted to tell it. I just felt like telling it. So let's go straight on ahead and get into the story of Asclepius. After getting it on with Apollo, a woman named Coronis assumes that this isn't going to be some grand, dramatic, classical romance. I mean, she's heard the stories. She knows what Apollo is like. He's not exactly into that monogamy thing. So she's just not going to make a whole big thing out of it. You know, she's just going to just let it be. So she just thinks, you know, oh, well, wasn't that nice? That was nice, wasn't it? All right, now I'll just go and get married to this other fellow from my hometown. Because, I mean, it's not as if Apollo and her were gonna stay together. This is Greek mythology. They weren't gonna stay together. But Apollo, finding out about this, either because he's psychic and had a vision, or because a crow came and was gossiping in his direction about it. Love can't keep a woman, can't keep a woman. I can't do a crow, I can do a parrot. That's the best crow I've got. Crows. And so anyway, Apollo like singes the crow and that's why it's black now instead of white, which was apparently its original color. Cause he's like, shoot the messenger, damn it. I'm gonna shoot all the messengers I want. But anyway, Apollo is very hurt by Coronis' decision to, you know, do what he was gonna do anyway. And so he cries about it a lot and he gets his sister Artemis to go and exact revenge on Coronis for him. And so Artemis, to get her brother's revenge, goes and like, horribly murders Coronis and a bunch of all of her neighbors just for no real reason in a massive bloodbath. Everybody's dead. Everybody's dead, Dave. And so Artemis and Apollo and Hermes are piling up all the bodies onto funeral pyres and as the flames lick around and start burning at Coronis's body, Apollo goes, oh wait, yeah, you know, I should probably get my, get my unborn son out of there, right, right? I should probably do that. Hermes, could you get the baby out of the womb for me? I swear this guy can't do anything for himself. But of course, now that Apollo has the baby, he doesn't know what the hell to do with it. He doesn't know what the hell to do with the baby. What's he gonna do with the baby? Chiron, you've raised and tutored babies before, right? You do that a bunch. Yeah. Have, have a baby. What's it called? Oh, uh, damn, hadn't thought of that. Um... Well, you know, we had to, uh, we had to cut it out of its mother, so, I mean, like, Asclepius? That, that sounds namey, right? Asclepius means to cut open, so that's where he got his name from, from there. So Chiron the centaur raises and tutors this demigod in his cave, as he is so often done throughout mythology, and in particular, 
particular, he teaches Asclepius about the art of medicine. And as he got older, Asclepius developed this art and he mastered it to a sheer perfection. Like, to the point where he could healed the dead. <laughs> he just got so psyched about how good he was at this healing gig, at this this medicine thing, that he just, he became a necromancer and he just starts reviving dead peeps all over the place. No matter what the ailment, no matter how extreme, he could fix it. What's that? Hippolytus killed by a big wave with a seal on it that frightened him and made him crash his chariot. No problem. I'll just patch that up real quick. Bing! Alive again. Capanius zapped by an angry Zeus for shouting about how much better he is than the king of the gods while scaling a ladder at the wall of Thebes. That, that's nothing. No big. All it needs is a little de-zappification. Bing! Bing! Alive again. People who drowned, people who'd been splattered and crushed, people who'd been chopped up into little tiny pieces and sprinkled into a stew. None of it mattered. Nothing was beyond Asclepius's necromantic powers. But pretty quickly, Hades got sickly of Asclepius poaching all of his underworld citizens and he lodged a formal complaint. Zeus didn't want to deal with any of this nonsense. He never wants to deal with any of this nonsense. You know, he's got skis bagging to do, a very full schedule of skis bagging. And so he just zapped Asclepius to death down into the underworld with his lightning bolt. It's too bad Asclepius couldn't de-zapificationify himself. But now Apollo was so mad about everything, but he can't fight Zeus for multiple reasons. So instead, he takes it out on the Cyclops' Cyclops, the, the Cyclops' Because, you see, one of them had invented the Thunderbolt weapon for Zeus during the Titanomachy, the war against the Titans, way back in the day. So, getting revenge on just a whole bunch of their race was, was sound logic. But now Poseidon's all upset because Apollo has killed one or more of his sons. So now Zeus is like, ugh, seriously? Seriously? You gotta start killing your cousins? You gotta start bringing this into the family? You can't kill family members! Now we're gonna come up with an actual punishment for you! Like, I'm, I'm this close to sending you to Tartarus! As if Zeus hadn't just killed a family member. I did, this is your... And so this punishment is how Apollo ended up indentured to Admetus, which I talked about a while back in a different video, and all the adventures that occurred therein. So if you haven't seen that video, and you want to know what happens immediately after this part of the story, you can click right over here to go and see what happens. Or also, I'll put a link in the description below. That is Garfield Black Anyway, I hope you and today I have for you a mythology video, another Norse video today because a lot of you have been requesting them and also I thought what with the blood moon having happened this week, it'd be a nice little idea to dip into uh, concepts from mythology as to how eclipses and things like the blood moon happen. It's also one of those stories where we get to find out where a bunch of words we use on a day-to-day -day basis come from, which I always find really exciting. I mean, like, why are Earth 
moon and sun some of the only heavenly bodies that we uh, regularly talk about which aren't named after Roman or Greek mythology. Why? Where do those words come from? Day and night, where do we get these? Where do we get them from? I'll tell you where we get them from. We get them from Norse mythology. So when the world was created, uh, there was a woman, a Jotun, named Night. And she was dark and swarthy and a bit of a go-getter. And during the course of creation, she managed to have three whole marriages and a child within each of them. In fact, Night was the mother of a daughter named Yerd, or Earth. A beautiful, brilliant, shining son whose name was Daga, or Day. And another son whose name was Auda. Don't know much about him, but hey, hey, there we go already. We got, we got day, we got night, we got the earth. Hey! But soon as the Aesir raised the skull of the great giant Emir up into the, uh, well, I was going to say sky to become the sky, up into the void, the yawning void, the Ganunga Gap, creepy word, they took his skull, they made it the sky. And Odin elected for night and day to fly across this brand new sky at regular intervals to create the day and night cycle to help humans tell the time. Then Odin and his brothers went and they took some of the embers from the flaming realm of Muspelheim, way, way down south, the opposite end of Niflheim, the frosty realm, and they, they placed them up in the sky to create the stars and the moon and the sun, lots of embers to make the sun. So, like, whoa, loads and loads of embers, like, wah. And the stars knew their place, or would follow the courses set for them by Odin. But the sun and the moon would need someone to guide them. A short while after humans had been created, a story we'll get to another time, two siblings were born, and they were simply gorgeous. Beautiful, beautiful people. My word! And so the Aesir, the Norse gods, elected that Sol, or Sunna, the sister, would become the sun, and that Mani, the brother, would become the moon. Each of them was provided a horse-drawn chariot with which to drive their charge across the sky. And it's noted that the heat from the sun as Sol was driving was so intense that the gods had to provide cooling mechanisms for the, her horses, early riser, and strong guy? What's the other horse's name? Allsvid, which means all swift. Cause baby now we got bad blood. <laughs> they had to provide in some versions cooled irons to keep the horses from overheating or in some versions a little like pockets of wind that would just keep them keep them nice and air conditioned while they ran across the scars. She also had to have a person standing on the chariot with her shielding the heat from the sun with a shield because otherwise everything would catch fire because it was just that hot. It's the sun. Marnie on the other hand had it relatively easy. He uh, he was just driving the moon, picking and choosing when it was gonna wax and wane. New moon, full moon, you know. He's just got that cycle going on. Although he did kidnap two children to help him with that. But either way, once again, these two were established as ways to help tell time as the months and years and days and hours and all that sort of stuff went by. But it wasn't just all dandy and roses. Like I said at the beginning, this is about an eclipse story. So exactly what is it that causes the blood moon? Well, elsewhere, in a place called the Iron Wood, a giantess was giving birth to a brood of 
gigantic wolves, two of which were named Skull and Hutty. These two were sent into the sky to hunt down and chase Sol and Marnie at great speed. As Sol races through the daytime, trying as hard as she can to escape from this gigantic wolf going faster and faster and faster, she sees beside her another wolf, Hutty, chasing after her brother in really just scary quick pursuit that's already known to all involved that eventually one day the wolves will catch up and Hattie will tear into Marnie devouring him and spraying the sky with blood staining the moon red the sun in turn will also be devoured leaving us with two very distinctly eclipse-like stories of course these events do signal the beginning of Ragnarok. However, given the immensely cyclical nature of Norse mythology, I don't think it'd be too problematic to assume that this story cycle, the eclipse cycle, was allowed to happen more than one time. But maybe that's just me. Let me know what you think. Let's go. Today, the classic tale of Arachne and how Arachnids happened to become a thing to terrify people throughout the ages. So Arachne was this super duper poor girl. She was basically a street rat. She was like, her dad was working jobs all the time. Her mum was dead. She was just, it's like, she wasn't having a great time, but she did have one thing going for her. Arachne had a special talent for weaving, but there was one thing that kept irking irking Arachne big time, it was that people kept just assuming that she had been taught to weave by Athena, because Athena was the goddess of sort of those those crafty things, those those textiles and whatnot. And so people said, what was Athena like? She must have taught you personally for you to be that good. And Arachne, understandably, got sick of having to share the credit for her own hard work and natural talent with some goddess woman that she'd never seen or met before in her entire life. And so eventually Arachne just snapped and shouted at someone, Ugh! No, would you shut up about Athena already? I'm probably way better than her. Anyway. But Athena was listening. Athena is always listening. And so Athena shows up, disguising herself as this incredibly old, shriveled, bent over, wrinkled old woman. Look kid, you're young. You've got your whole life ahead of you spinning wool. So if you admit that Athena is the best seamstress ever right now, then maybe she'll let it go. She might just forgive you before things get out of hand. No offense, Golden Oldie, but I feel like if Athena wants to come and prove that she's a better weaver than me, then she's gonna have to come and compete against me. Herself in person, or like Godson, or whatever. Athena comes to you! Before Arachne even finished her sentence, Athena had thrown off her old lady disguise and stood there shining in all of her helmeted, spear-wielding glory. And then there was this moment when Athena stared at Arachne, and Arachne stared back, and the two of them just stood there, waiting. It was like a standoff from an old western film. And then like a gunshot, the weaving began and suddenly the genre switched from classic western to like, I mean, I don't know, what genre would you call Fast and the Furious? Like, cars action? Like, speed racer sporty but with a side of death? 
That's what the genre became, but with weaving. They both grabbed their weaving equipment and went for it fast as lightning. Athena weaved this huge tapestry and right in the center of it was this, was this huge picture of her winning the patronage of Athens over Poseidon because, I don't know, she just likes rubbing that in whenever she gets the chance. And then in each corner of the tapestry she depicted a new and terrible way in which uh, the gods have punished humans for saying that they were better than the gods. This was pretty impressive stuff, but when Athena looked over to see what Arachne had made, she beheld scene upon scene woven in perfect artistic detail of Zeus, Poseidon, Apollo, and so many more of the gods seducing mortal women in false forms, taking a pretty huge jab at their sleazy skis bagginess, and their weird animal sex fetish, just all at once, just, just, just prodding the bear. I like this girl. Athena was simultaneously insulted on behalf of her male relatives, she shouldn't be. They brought this on themselves by being the worst. And infuriated by the perfection of her rival's work. It was a flawless masterpiece. Even she had to admit it. But that didn't mean that she took it well. She, she beat Arachne around the head a couple of times with her weaving stick. The the thing that you uphold, what are they called? And then she sprinkled the youth with a concoction of Hecate's proclaiming that, well, fine, Arachne could just weave forever then if she was so damn good at it. Cue super gross transformation sequence given in all the gory details in which Arachne loses all her hair and more eyes start growing from her current eyes and then her head shrinks like and her fingers fuse to her sides and become really long, lengthening into spindly limbs. And her legs and her torso just fold up and combine until they're just one big abdomen. And then all of her just crumbled down and started to shrink and she had to live out the rest of her days as a spider. But because Athena is so kind and glorious and generous, she took pity on Arachne. And so she allowed the girl to still spin thread from her butt. So that's today's story. I hope you enjoyed it. The gods can be jerks. I mean, wow. If you did in fact enjoy it, then I would be so damn damn damn. Hello humans, my name is Dale Kingsmill. Today I've got another myth story for you. Hooray! I was also really, really hungry and it's breakfast time. So, you know, I thought, why not? Why not keep it cash? Why not have my breakfast while telling you the myth? You guys can eat your breakfast too. I know a lot of you watch them in the mornings. And you know what? Even if it isn't, even if it's nighttime, even if it's like 4am or whatever, you should go and get some breakfast because breakfast is always good. Get yourself some cereal. Get yourself some toast. It's really delicious. Have some breakfast with me. I've also got hot chocolate. So anyway, today I'm eating jam and cream on toast and marmalade and cream on toast while telling you the story of Hades and Persephone. So one day, Persephone was out in a field and she was picking flowers with her posse. You know, just as you do, teenage girls running around picking flowers, that's what we do. Girls, apparently. Now Hades really wants to ask Persephone out, but he's too weird and shy and geeky about it. And so instead he asks his mum, Gaia, the Earth, to send Persephone a really pretty flower, just a single flower that'll grow 
right in front of Persephone that'll be the most beautiful flower she's ever seen. And Gaia does, and it works, and it's this gorgeous, gorgeous little flower that Persephone instantly stops and tries to pick. Thanks, Mom! But then, out of nowhere, Hades stops being just a shy, geeky person and turns into a complete crazy weirdo because he bursts out of the ground in his golden chariot up from Hades and just grabs Persephone, snatches her and kidnaps her, turns around goes straight back down into the underworld again. Who knows why he chose to go in his chariot for this trip because it seems like a really short trip to be making via golden chariot, but he did. So, I mean, that's a thing. Just up and dives back down again. Now, the only people who hear Persephone's cries for help are Hecate, the goddess of magic who lives in the underworld, and Helios, god of the sun, and he heard it because he, he sees everything. Now, it only takes Demeter a really little while to realize that her daughter has gone missing. And Demeter starts wandering around for nine days, fasting the whole time and asking people if they know what's happened to Persephone. Finally, Demeter runs into Hecate, who says, I heard Persephone crying out for help, but I didn't see what happened. You know who will have seen it, though? The sun, because he sees everything. Let's you and me go ask Helios what exactly went down. So the two of them go and see Helios, who immediately spills the beans and says that Persephone was kidnapped by Hades because Hades Hades had a total crush on her. This is not the way, Hades. This is not the way. Demeter demands that her brother Zeus intervene in what's going on, but Zeus says that he doesn't even care. He doesn't want to get involved in this. And so then Demeter is all just like, well, fine, no crops for you then. So Demeter disguised herself as an old woman and went into full-on mourning mode, traveling the earth and just weeping for her lost daughter. And all the while, she refused to let any crops grow anywhere on the earth. And so a massive famine began. One day she was sitting at a well in this little, little town when some women who happened to be the daughters of the king of the town came by and they were really nice to her and they greeted her courteously. They said hey, they introduced themselves because this was a new lady that they hadn't seen in town before. Always be nice to the new person, always be nice to the new person. That's actually some really good life advice. Always be nice to the new person. Panicking a little bit because she clearly just hadn't thought her cover story through far enough, Demeter sort of says, oh, I was kidnapped from Crete and brought here by pirates. Would you know of any work? that I might obtain, fellow mortals. And so, the princesses, they've got a little baby brother. They take Demeter as this old woman back to their house and ask their mother whether she might be able to get work as the nursemaid for the new baby, for the new royal baby. And the mother says yes, but Demeter is still pretty unhappy most of the time because, you know, her daughter has been stolen. So the mother of the well girls sets out to cheer Demeter up, and they basically do that by telling dirty jokes and drinking a lot. They basically get drunk and play cards against humanity, you know? And for the first time since the kidnapping, Demeter actually laughed. She actually enjoyed herself. She was happy again. And so to thank the mother for making her laugh, Demeter decided to bestow immortality on the new baby prince. But do you know how a god tries to make a, a human baby immortal? They do it by bathing the baby in ambrosia every single day and, uh, and putting the baby to sleep in a bed of fire. They put the baby in the fire. This is to burn the mortality out of the child so that none of the mortal bits are left and it's only the immortal stuff. 
it doesn't usually go well. So for a couple of days and nights this was working out, Demeter would bathe the baby in the ambrosia and then put it to sleep in the coals at the bottom of the fire. But then one day, baby's mum walks in, sees the baby in the fire with the nursemaid just sitting by doing nothing and freaks out. She rushes over and pulls the baby out and Demeter, Demeter gets way mad. And she's really insulted by this, okay? Because the gods, as I've said before, are pretty crazy. They don't understand that from the mortal point of view, you're just trying to burn the baby to death, alright? Demeter thinks, hey, how rude. I was bestowing a gift of immortality on your son, and here you are, just throwing it in my face. You don't even care. Ugh, rude. Demeter, no, no, no. And then Demeter gets even crazier. She, she just grabs the baby and kills it and then reveals her godhood and demands a temple of the people of this town to appease her for having not let her put the baby in a fire. This story's getting weird, I'm just saying. And the townspeople did it because you kind of got no choice in Greek mythology. They built her a temple, a magnificent temple. It was so glorious and Demeter stayed there for a year, going into full mourning mode once again. But finally, with Demeter in mourning for so long, the lack of crops was starting to become a real problem and the gods on Olympus were starting to worry that the humans would all die out. Uh -huh. You thought for a moment there like I did that they actually cared about humanity, didn't you? No, no, that was not the case. They were worried that humans would die out and therefore the gods would stop getting sacrifices made to them. So they were actually worried about themselves not getting offerings. But I mean, it has the bonus of them not wanting humanity to die out. So that's, I mean, that's a kind of a good thing ish, I guess. So anyway, Zeus sent the other messenger of the gods, Iris, on her lovely rainbow to go and ask Demeter if maybe she could, you know, let things grow again. That would be nice, please. But Demeter refuses, just as Zeus had refused to go and help Persephone after she had been kidnapped. Then, every single one of the gods shows up with a present for Demeter at the temple and says, Please, can you let things grow again? I'll give you my I'll give you my toast. But Demeter refuses the gifts. She doesn't want any of them. She just wants her daughter back. And so finally, seeing that Demeter was not gonna budge, Zeus yields, and he commands Hades to send Persephone back to the surface world to be with her mother once again. But before letting Persephone go, Hades said to her, you know what, you look you look really hungry. You've been here for such a long time and I don't think I offered you anything to eat. Good thing they're immortal. That's a long time. Why don't you have some pomegranate? Come on, doesn't it look great? It looks so tasty. Just have some pomegranate, it's so good. And Persephone was genuinely very, very hungry at this point, so she took a couple of the pomegranate seeds. She took a couple of them kernels, some of them delicious, red, juicy-looking kernels of pomegranate seedy goodness, and she swallowed six of them. I don't understand how that's meant to make her not hungry. Pomegranate, they're... It's not that filling, I'm just saying. Maybe it's like Lambus bread. So then, when Persephone reached her mother again and they were reunited and they embraced and were hugging and were happy, unfortunately, several citizens of the underworld had witnessed Persephone eat the food of the underworld. And unfortunately, much like the realm of fairy, if you eat the food of the other realm, 
you're kind of stuck there. You are forever bound to that realm and can never completely leave it. And so Demeter conceded that a compromise would have to be reached. Persephone would then spend half the year in the underworld with Hades as the queen of the dead and would spend the other half of the year on Olympus with her mother and the other gods being, you know, bright and sunny and Woohoo! Summertime! And this is the main story given in Greek mythology to explain the changing of the seasons because when Demeter has to let her daughter go back down into the underworld, she gets sad again and enters mourning and refuses to let anything grow and that's why we have winter! And then when Persephone comes back, you get springtime and summertime because everything's good again. Woo! There's... Yeah. Seasons. Woo! Seasons. What am I? That was this week's myth. I hope that you enjoyed it. And I hope that you enjoyed eating some breakfast along with it. I hope you did eat breakfast. Is the most hard mode Ravenclaw ever, basically. I mean, even just on a shallow, superficial level, Odin was known for his two pet ravens, Huggin and Munnin. And what do those two names translate to? They translate to, to thought and memory, more or less. And Odin, every single day, would send those two ravens out to fly across Midgard, or the human realm, and collect information for him. And so, come dinner time, the two of them would fly back and tell Odin all of the secrets and happenings that they learnt about. And Odin actually talks about, in the Eddas, how he he's desperately afraid that one day Hagen won't return from his flight, Thought won't return from his flight, but that the thing he's even more scared to death of is that Munnen won't return. Memory won't return. Oh, Odin, what a wise dude. But let's look real quick at a couple of the stories that demonstrate how clearly Odin was a Ravenclaw. So story number one, Odin, having just found out about uh, the coming of Ragnarok, is completely freaked out. And so, being a pretty clever guy, he decides that what he's going to have to do is go out into the world and try to discover some new knowledge, learn some things that could help him and help the rest of the world when Ragnarok comes. And so, for a good long while, Odin wandered around the Nine Realms disguised as an old man with a, with a big walking staff and a old traveler's cloak, a big blue traveler's cloak. Basically he looked he looked like Gandalf. Think Gandalf. That's what Odin was disguising himself as. And so that was how he traveled, all the while asking questions of everyone he passed and challenging giants to games of riddles in the hopes of gaining some sweet juicy granules of new information. Oh, that tasty learning. But mostly, Odin had his mind set on the well of Erd. This was a spring of knowledge, essentially, that existed at the very base of the world tree, Idrisil. And rumour had it that anyone could learn anything if only they were to drink from that well. Now this guy called Mimir, or Mim, Mimir? Mim, is that how you say that? Mimir? What's Mimir? Lived at the well and drank from it basically all the time, every day, and so he knew more or less everything that there was to know in the entire cosmos. But when Odin turned up and asked for one lousy drink from the well in order to try and save the world, Mimir turned into a big jerk and was like, no, sorry, I demand that you sacrifice something first. Specifically, your right eye. It's just a bit of a douche move, really. I mean, come on. You big jerk, it's not like you're running out of water. You've been drinking it forever, what gives you the right to drink from it? But Odin can't. But that's okay, because in a later story he's gonna get decapitated. And then Odin just carries around his severed head everywhere, which is still alive. 
and just tells Odin everything he needs to know because it still knows everything. Odin, completely undaunted by the prospect of having to trade his eye for this knowledge, plucks it out, just plucks his eye straight out of his skull, chucks it straight into the water of the well, and then gets his drink of tasty, tasty information, now complete with eye goop. So yeah, pretty relentless seeker of knowledge, I would say. Then there was that other time that Odin, up on his throne in Asgard, was looking down and watching the Norns. The Norns were women of fate who could shape events in all of the Nine Realms just by carving in special powerful runes into the base of Idrisil. Now Odin wanted himself that damn magic alphabet, but he knew that the runes were powerful, and so they wouldn't show themselves to anyone who hadn't proven themselves worthy. And so, like any normal person would do, Odin hung himself from a branch of Idrisil, stabbed himself with his own spear, and then refused to accept any food or drink or help of any kind from the other gods for a full nine days, while he just hangs there, staring down into the well of Erd where the runes are hidden. So after these nine days of hanging and starving and bleeding out, finally, Odin's vision starts going a bit funny, a bit blurry, and some strange shapes begin to present themselves to him in the water. Odin is seemingly incapable of communicating a sense of triumph, or maybe just after nine days of, of basically self-imposed torture, he can't quite remember how to express it, because he just starts shrieking, shrieking. <coughs> Ow. Oh. Don't make that noise, that one hurts. But it turns out to be kind of worth it because he learns all kinds of spells from the runes in order to do fantastic magical things. And then he shares the alphabet with everybody. I bet the powers that be weren't too pleased with that because he's the one who proved himself. So really, they were probably expecting for him to be the only one who knew those runes, but Odin told everyone. Power to the people, freedom of information. Mm, yeah. Odin teaches the runes to the gods, he gets Dane to teach the elves, there's Dwalin who teaches them to the dwarves, and then Auswith who teaches the alphabet to the giants and the humans. Woo! Rune party! Rune party. That was a bit weird. So yeah, basically, Odin, massive Ravenclaw, giant nerd, but also total badass. Don't, don't try to fight him because... You, you're probably gonna die. That's it for today. I hope you've enjoyed this video. If you do enjoy these... Hello, humans. My name is Dale Kingsmill. Today should be Halloween, hopefully, in the spirit of uh, reviving some of my old videos that aren't accessible on the Geek and Sundry Vlogs channel anymore. Uh, I thought I would retell one of my favorites I've ever done, The Tale of Stingy Jack and the First Jack-O-Lantern. I will say, fair warning, Ordinarily, when I do these videos, mythology, fairy tales, what have you, I typically know the story, but before I film the video, I go and I re-research the story and I read a bunch of different versions of it, uh, a lot of different source material, and I bring you something that is fresh from my brain, fresh from some source material. That is not the case today. I can't find the source material that I used last time, and the sources that I found for the tale of Stingy Jack are not exactly the most, uh, you know, Academic. So what you're getting today is the the proper campfire tale version. This is how I remember the story going the last time I told it when I had done some research. So sit back and enjoy an oogly boogly spooky tale. So Jack was an Irishman uh, of 
ill repute, shall we say. He was a drunkard and a thief and a liar. And uh, on top of that, to boot, Jack was a bit of a trickster. He was known for playing awful tricks on all the people of his town. Uh, but this particular Halloween, this particular Sawan evening, Sawan Eve? Sawan evening. Halloween. Halloween evening. So evening? <laughs> One Sawin, Jack is playing tricks. This year, he's got a killer idea, right? Jack takes a pumpkin and he carves a face into it, a, a horrifying face, pointed teeth in a, in a grisly grin and evil looking eyes. And to complete the effect, he puts a candle on the inside to light the whole face up from within so that it looks like, like a devil from hell. And he hides the jack-o'-lantern uh, in the bushes along a road, a, a lonesome road, a long and lonesome road. And so when the townspeople are walking along the road at night, one at a time, they see this horrifying, fiery face from in the bushes and they run screaming into the night. Terrifying it was, terrifying. Jack thinks he's done a pretty good job. And, uh, and he goes off for the night. So you can understand with this sort of behavior, Jack has earned a reputation. And the reputation's not a great one. His town doesn't love him. In fact, his reputation uh, was such a powerful one that it had reached the ears of Satan himself. And the devil thought, ah, yes, this one is for me. This is a soul I must collect. So as Jock... Jock? His name is Jock now. So now, as Jack is walking home along this this quiet stone road in the countryside of Ireland, he comes across a dead body on a bridge. A dead body is a gruesome thing. It's very freaky to see, especially in the middle of the night. But Jack does think to himself, hmm, maybe he's got a little, uh, little cash on him. He doesn't need it anymore. Why shouldn't I have it? So Jack goes to uh, check the pockets of the corpse, and as he approaches, the corpse rolls over, and it's got this horrible, huge smile on its face, just like the one that Jack carved into the pumpkin. And the corpse sits up and introduces itself. Pleased to meet you, Jack. I am Satan. Jack's like, ooh, no, I've done it now. I'm in some trouble. Satan explains that he's come to, uh, to take Jack to hell for all of his misdeeds. But Jack, thinking quickly, says, okay, Sure, sure, but uh, I would like one last request. And the devil says, yeah, okay, that sounds agreeable. Uh, what would you like? I would like to share a drink with you. Come with me to the pub, Satan. And Satan's like, hey, best last request ever. Let's go get turned. So the two of them go to the pub. They drink themselves a little bit silly. But when it comes time to pay the, the bartender for the drinks that they've been having, Jack pats himself down and he says, oh, I'm really strapped for cash at the moment. Um, but oh, you know what, though? You're the devil, right? You can trick anyone. You know what you could do? Turn into a silver coin, and I'll pay the barman with that. And then you can turn back, and we'll, uh, we'll off to hell. The devil's a bit drugged, so he's like, <clears throat> great, great plan. Turns himself into a silver coin, which Jack promptly uh, takes, and he does not give to the bartender. He puts it in his satchel. You know what's in his satchel? It's a bunch of crucifixes, because Jack was robbing a church earlier. So the devil is stuck in coin form. He can't, none of his powers are working because he's surrounded by the, the power of Christ. And he's like, okay, Jack, that's enough. Let me out. And Jack's like, no, let me out, Jack. No, you're just going to take me to hell. So the devil says, oh, okay. All right, let me out and I'll make you a deal. I won't come back for you for another 10 years. How about that? How about that, Jack? Let me out of the bag. 10 whole years of life. Jack thinks that's a pretty sweet deal and he lets the devil out of his bag. Ten years go by. Jack is living the life that he's always been living. Tricking people, stealing things, lying, all that stuff I said at the top. And before he knows it, ten years is up. 
It's Sawan evening again, and Jack walking home along a quiet country road comes again across the devil corpse on the bridge. The devil's a little uh, a little madder this time. He's like, it's time to come with me now, Jack. Come with me to hell. You know you belong there anyway. Jack's thinking on his feet. He's like, uh, yeah, sure, okay. Except I haven't eaten tonight, and I'm very hungry, and I would love a last meal. So why don't we just go to the pub and buy a- No! We're not buying anything, all right? You can have an apple from this tree. I'll get you an apple from the friggin' tree, all right? We're not paying for nothing, no coins. Not dealing with that again. Okay, all right, fine. Devil starts to climb the apple tree by the road. He gets up to the top just as he's reaching for an apple. He looks down and realizes that Jack has been carving crosses around the trunk of the tree in a ring. And now the devil can't climb back down. Damn it, Jack! Jack says, sorry, Satan, man, I just can't, I can't deal with this. I, hell seems like a lot, seems like not really my speed. I'd really rather hang out here and keep doing me. It's a lovely offer, I'm sure you're an excellent host, but not for me, thank you very much. And with the devil stuck up in the tree, he has no choice but to make another deal with Jack. Jack says, this time, 10 years isn't enough. I want your guarantee that you will never take me into hell. Satan sighs and says, fine, fine, Jack, I will never take you into hell. Just let me out of this freaking tree. And Jack does. And the devil goes on his way and Jack goes on his. I would love to be able to say that Jack lived a long, happy life after that. Uh, would I love to say that? I don't know, he's robbing a lot of corpses in churches. But uh, it turns out that drinking so heavily all the time and making everyone hate you, not great for your health, not great. So he died not too long after. And Jack traveled in his afterlife to the pearly gates where he hoped to enter heaven. But Peter told him, Jack, you spend your whole life tricking people and lying and thieving and you robbed a church that one time. There's not a lot of good to work with here. I, I'm sorry, but can't let you in. And Jack's like, ooh, okay, uh, what do I do now then? Better, better head on down to hell. So Jack goes, oh, well, I guess it's better than nothingness. And he follows the path all down the other way until he gets to the gates of hell. Satan won't let him in. Satan reminds Jack, no, no, you made me promise that I would never take you into hell. And here we are, Jack. You're dead. You're in limbo. Can't get to heaven, can't get to hell. I don't think I could have devised something better myself. And Jack is freaking out. He doesn't want to hang out by himself in the void forever. Any afterlife is better than this. He begs, he pleads, but Satan will not break his promise to Jack. He does, however, do him one favor, one last favor. He tosses Jack an ember baked in the fires of hell, fueled by the souls of the damned, so that Jack can light his way through the darkness. And so Jack wanders. He wandered and wandered for a long time until one day he found himself back in his old town and he saw through the bushes on the side of the road a face carved into a pumpkin. He took up the makeshift lantern, placed the ember inside so that he might protect it to his best ability. But now every Sawan, Jack returns to our material plane of existence, carrying that grisly, horrifying face. And he is now known as Jack of the Lantern. Now keep in mind that Jack has to keep his ember lit, otherwise, as he wanders through the void, the nothingness, he'll have nothing to light his way. And so people began putting out their own carved pumpkins, lit by candle fire, to frighten Jack away from their doorstep. So if you see a jack-o'-lantern face bobbing through the night this Halloween, just beware that it might be Jack on the lookout for more souls, hoping that his light will never go out. Happy Halloween!
Halloween. I hope you enjoyed that story. I know that jack-o'-lanterns were originally turnips and it seems the common version of this story says that Jack happened to carry a turnip in his pocket because he just loved eating turnips, but uh, it's just not as festive to me. I'm sorry, Team Pumpkin all the way. Now, before I forget, you might have heard of Nano.